0: Clean listeners, welcome to the 88th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. So how do you reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions across the economy by 2050? Well, that's exactly the question we set out to answer on today's episode, where we talk about the results of Governor Cooper's deep decarbonization pathways analysis, which was just released. And the answer to that question, well, there's a lot of things we can and should be doing, But first, a quick update. In just over a month, the annual State Energy Conference is back and in action at the McKimmon Conference Center in Raleigh from April 25th through the 26th. This is North Carolina's largest energy conference offering content for just about everyone, with tracks ranging from residential homes to renewable energy to utilities and infrastructure. There's a number of sessions throughout this year's conference that are sure to be of interest to many of our listeners, including the Carbon Plan, Customer Clean Energy Programs and federal funding opportunities, to name a few. I know I'll be there at this year's conference, and I hope to see you there as well. To register, make sure to visit ncenergyconference.com. And as mentioned a minute ago, the focus of today's episode is the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Analysis issued by Governor Cooper's office just about a month ago. And where this report really shines is highlighting some of the harder-to-abate sectors of the economy, along with the built environment. Two areas that I don't think get enough attention, especially given all the focus recently on the electricity and transportation sectors. Although, rightfully so, given that those two are the highest emitting sectors in the economy. However, if we want to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, we're going to have to focus quite a bit in the coming years on those other sectors as well. But before I spill the beans on the rest of the report, I'm going to let our guests do most of the talking. Clean energy. energy. On today's episode, we have someone joining us who is a public policy professional with over ten years of experience working on climate change, clean energy, and environmental justice issues across the United States. He currently serves as Governor Cooper's senior advisor for climate change policy and is responsible for policy development, project management, stakeholder engagement, strategic planning. And other duties to execute the governor's climate agenda. Our guest previously served as a special advisor on climate and clean energy for Governor Jared Polis, and as a policy advisor for Governor John Hickenlooper. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Zach Pierce to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Zach, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to be here.
0: And just to uh, to jump in as background for our listeners, the governor's office just released their deep decarbonization pathways analysis in February. What prompted this analysis originally, and what's the greater policy purpose behind completing the analysis?
1: Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for the question and the opportunity to talk more about the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Analysis, which is a very long title, so I'll just refer to it as the Pathways Analysis from here on out. But to answer your question, basically the, the directive for the state to undertake this effort lives in Executive Order 246, which was one of the governor's sweeping climate, clean energy and environmental justice executive orders that he issued in January of 2022. That order included a number of directives that I don't think we need to to discuss in detail here today, but one of the things that it did do was Establish new greenhouse gas targets for the state. So, you know, to answer the question, we actually have to go back to 2018 when the governor issued Executive Order 80, another order focused on a number of climate objectives that set the administration's first economy wide greenhouse gas targets, specifically a 40% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2025. And then as we move to 2022, in Executive Order 246, he established targets for 2030, so a 50% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030, and achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions no later than 2050. These goals are aligned with the latest climate science and aligned with the United States uh, commitments under the Paris Agreement, and it was a really important step for North Carolina to, to be clear that we share those goals, and that's the ultimate measure of success when it comes to our greenhouse gas emissions. And one of the really great stories that we can talk more about is that North Carolina actually has done a pretty significant work when it comes to reducing its greenhouse gas emissions over time. We use a 2005 baseline. We've reduced our emissions even as our state's economy has grown. Our state's population has grown. But there's more work to do. So basically, this pathways analysis is in analytical and planning exercise that was informed by stakeholder feedback that we can talk more about, that simply put was really designed to help us understand the steps that we need to take to make sure that the state continues to progress towards the greenhouse gas targets that were articulated in Executive Order 246 and Executive Order 80. So specifically, the analysis did a few objectives. The analysis analyzed various technologically feasible greenhouse gas emission reduction pathways to achieve our greenhouse gas targets. And we can talk more about what those specific pathways are. The analysis identified some high-level planning and policy takeaways that we hope will inform our near-term, mid-term, and ultimately our long-term decarbonization efforts that are happening all across the state that your podcast has done a great job of documenting. And ultimately, we want to equip decision makers, policy makers, and other stakeholders with a better understanding of how to effectively reduce emissions within specific sectors and also across the economy and just build on the great work that's already underway. This study is not exhaustive by any means. There's more questions that we've raised as part of this analysis, but we do think it takes a really big step in furthering our understanding of some of the biggest opportunities to progress towards the governor's climate objectives. So I'll leave it there, but that's the high-level framing and motivation for the project.
0: You mentioned coming up with the tools to equip policymakers and decision makers with you know, the right sort of toolkit to help meet some of the state's greenhouse gas emissions reduction goals. And I think back to, for example, the Clean Energy Plan and the A1 and B1 stakeholder processes that led to reports that directly translated into bills like House Bill 951 here in in the state of North Carolina. So I see some parallels there between that and and what we're talking about here with the pathways analysis. To go back to, you know, what you you mentioned towards the beginning of your remarks, which is that you know North Carolina has already made quite a bit of progress in in reducing carbon emissions. We'll probably talk about this a little bit later. We saw the transportation industry or sector overtake the electricity generation sector in terms of total amount of emissions across the economy in North Carolina. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the progress that's already been made for emissions reductions? And even without any additional implementation measures, what path are we on for the next 10 to 20 years in emissions reductions here in North Carolina?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Matt. So the the answer to that question in the pathways analysis lives in our reference scenario, which is one of the pathways that we model, which is basically looking more closely at where is the state headed in a business as usual case, knowing what we know today and based on today's policies. One of the benefits of this work in North Carolina is that we've already been developing reference case scenarios, so to speak, in the form of our Department of Environmental Quality's greenhouse gas inventory, which has a forward-looking projection. And actually, one of the other directives in EO246 was for the Department of Environmental Quality to update that inventory, the greenhouse gas inventory, every other year. So the latest inventory was in 2022. And we were able to build on that analysis. So I should just be clear that the Pathways modeling is benchmarked to the the North Carolina greenhouse gas inventory. We did not want competing projections out there. We wanted to have as much kind of consistency with the existing state work product. But there were a few advantages to the approach that we were able to take with Pathways that that was able to complement the the GHG inventory projections. Uh, one of those was the fact that the inventory only projects out through. 2030. And so we were able to extend some of those assumptions out through 2050 and look at the longer term trajectory of this business as usual scenario. We were also able to incorporate some changes in the world that happened after the inventory was released. That's one of the challenges of modeling, right? You know, it seems like as soon as you release the analysis, it becomes updated pretty quickly just because it's such a dynamic world that we're living in at the local, state, and national and international level. So for Pathways specifically, we were able to model things like the most recently finalized federal fuel efficiency CAFE standards, which were not incorporated into the greenhouse gas inventory. We were able to incorporate some assumptions around House Bill 951, which were not necessarily, at least in an ongoing basis, incorporated into the, the base model for the inventory. And we were also Able to make some assumptions related to the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. And that was one that was kind of difficult, honestly, to decide, you know, what to incorporate because it was also new and all of the assumptions and implications were still being evaluated. But we were able to pull from some things like the Congressional Budget Office's assumptions as they were looking at the the fiscal impact of the IRA and others to incorporate that. So with all that as the lead up, the the Maybe more direct answer to your question is that under a reference case scenario, so under North Carolina's business as usual case that looks at things like House Bill 951, looks at the unprecedented generational investment in federal funding, we see a lot of progress in North Carolina towards our greenhouse gas targets. So as a quick recap, the executive targets for the Cooper administration are 40% by 2025, 50% by 2030, and net zero as soon as possible, no later than 2050. Our modeling in the reference case shows that we'll be at about a 37% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2025, a 46% reduction by 2030, and a 60% reduction by 2050. This was one of, honestly, the bigger surprises for me when we got the modeling back was looking at particularly at 2030 date, the fact that we're 4% away from our 2030 targets, certainly there's a lot of complexity behind that and assumptions. And you know we have a lot of work to do, but I think that speaks to a lot of the leadership and progress that many decision makers and stakeholders in the state have helped to cultivate over the years. Um, but as you get out to 2050, we're only reducing emissions 60% by 2050. So- the delta between where our missions are actually headed and where we're saying we want them to be based on the latest climate science is strikingly large. And it, and it speaks to the importance of doing a lot of work in the near term to start to bend the curve, especially looking at our, our long term goals. So, so that's the somewhat brief summary of the reference scenario and where North Carolina is, is headed, at least as, as we expect it under this modeling approach.
0: We'll we'll talk a little bit more about that delta here in a little bit, which is addressed via some of the scenarios outlined in the pathways analysis. And you partially, I think, answered this question as part of the, the last bit right there. But overall, why is this analysis important beyond the work of North Carolina's carbon plan and clean transportation plan, which we teed up a little bit earlier via the greenhouse gas inventory at NCDEQ We're two of the largest emitting sectors in North Carolina's economy. So beyond that, why is an analysis like this important to help get us through that last bit of carbon emissions reductions from that 60% to net zero by 2050?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. And maybe we'll start with a bigger picture answer and then kind of get into some more detail. But at a high level, one of the really exciting aspects of clean energy and climate policy in North Carolina is the fact that the state has undertaken these very in-depth planning processes, you know, the clean energy plan being the greatest example of that. That was one of the initiatives called for in Executive Order 80 signed by Governor Cooper in 2018. And as you already noted, that ultimately led to the bipartisan legislation House Bill 951, which has, of course, kicked off a process at the Utilities Commission to achieve that 70% emission reduction by 2030. We have the Clean Transportation Plan, and I want to come back to that uh, because there was interaction between the pathways analysis and the Clean Transportation Plan. But at a high level, we've, we've seen in North Carolina that we've made a lot of progress in sector-specific planning and studies, going into the weeds on all of the aspects of our electricity sector. We're doing that right now. With the transportation sector, one of the opportunities that we saw with Pathways was to complement that sector-specific work with an economy-wide look at literally every source of greenhouse gas emissions in the economy, as well as all of the sinks—you know, the negative emissions through our natural and working lands, which play a huge role in sequestering carbon. And you know, looking at the forest and the trees, I guess is one way to put it, of thinking through: okay, what sectors have we not looked as closely at? Uh, through the lens of our greenhouse gas emissions goals, what needs to happen in the built environment, what needs to happen in our industrial sector, but also looking at the interaction between sectors. One of the big trends that we can talk about more that we're seeing is an integration of the energy end uses across sectors where you you know haven't seen it in the past. And so, you know, examples of that would include the electrification of transportation, the electrification of end uses in in homes, and so this study does not answer all of those questions. You know, these are very complex topics, but it starts to, I think, highlight and distill some of those key transitions that are gonna happen, not just within a specific sector, but as we look through that economy wide lens. And then the other, maybe more detailed point I'll just make on the clean transportation plan is that we really tried to, so executive order 246 called for both the clean transportation plan and the pathways analysis. In a perfect world, we could sequence these things, right, and do the analytical work and then do the convening um, and stakeholder engagement. But we didn't have that luxury. And so we, we took a lot of time and, and effort to making sure that the stakeholders in the clean transportation plan process, which were focused on strategies and policies, had visibility into the modeling hot off the press. You know, even draft versions as we were going through the process that they understood the order of magnitude that we were seeing for things like vehicle miles traveled reduction in the efficiency of our transportation system or things like the penetration of electric vehicle sales in the light, medium, and heavy-duty sector. So we tried to create an interactive kind of dynamic between the clean transportation plan and pathways, and there's more of that work that's going to be needed.
0: So you talked about the the process of, of drafting up the clean transportation plan. What about the process of drafting up this analysis where there's stakeholder meetings involved leading up to the point of of release earlier this year in February?
1: Yeah, we had a few different venues for engagement, both internally and externally. And one of the dynamics of of this project was trying to be thorough and inclusive and making sure that we were getting perspectives from all sorts of experts and, and stakeholders across the state but also that we were trying to move somewhat quickly so that we could um, utilize the results in, in decision-making processes as we look to the final two years of the cooper administration and of course we hope the findings extend beyond that but our, our, our focus is really translating all of this into what can we do and focus on in the next six months in the next 12 months that's the at least the real near-term value um, in terms of process, so the governor's office was the lead on the project. I was the kind of pr- staff lead for the initiative. We worked with a fantastic consultant, Energy and Environmental Economics. They have, they were the real modeling, energy systems modeling experts. They had they own the proprietary model, the pathways model that actually did the work of capturing and representing all of the emissions in North Carolina over time. So we worked closely with E3. We had an interagency advisory committee, which was uh, representatives from agency, cabinet agencies, including Department of Environmental Quality, Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, Department of Commerce, Department of Transportation. The idea here being we wanted this analysis to both complement and be useful for all of those other processes and decision making um, efforts that are underway, whether it's the Clean Transportation Plan or. Um, the disbursement of federal funding or the communications efforts that agencies were undertaking. We also wanted to make sure that the analysis was grounded in the latest data um, and coordinated with the latest data sets that the state was using for things like the greenhouse gas inventory. So that interagency advisory committee was critical to the work. So that's the internal facing side. And then as you move external, we had a few different layers. So we convened a technical advisory group and I should give a shout out to Ward Lenz, the executive director of NCSEA, who, who graciously served on that technical advisory group. In total, that group was about 17 people of diverse backgrounds. So we had academia, energy systems modeling experts. We had representatives from all of the industries and sectors that were modeled as part of the analysis to make sure that we had perspective on you know, what are reasonable assumptions, what data should we, we, we be looking at. And then we also had a, f- a number of voices from what I, would, I guess I would characterize as the public interest uh, space. So folks who had expertise in consumer protection or environmental justice or environmental advocacy. So if, if podcast listeners want to know exactly what that group was, you can look at the pathways analysis. We've listed that group and we're very appreciative for their time and, and perspective. And then the final two kind of venues for public engagement. We conducted a lot of targeted engagement. We wanted to get out there and make sure that folks understood what we were doing, what this process was, why we were doing it, and hear from them about ways we could improve it. The the purpose of this analysis is to be as useful to as many stakeholders across the state. And so we really took an open and inclusive approach. So we, you know, I've already talked about the coordination with the clean transportation plan stakeholders. We have briefed the utilities, North Carolina Utilities Commission. We have briefed natural and working land stakeholder groups, other environmental advocacy groups, environmental justice organizations, a long list, and some of that is captured in the report. But making sure that this wasn't something that was going to surprise people or that we missed opportunities to un- identify and answer key analytical questions. And then finally, we had three broad town hall style public engagement sessions where invited anyone who had an interest in providing feedback asking questions or just learning more about what we were doing so that was those were held throughout the process and then we have an online home you know which if folks want to visit they can both look at the report but also recordings of presentations and some of the kind of wonkier spreadsheets of modeling assumptions and the you know looking under the hood of on the model itself. So that's that's a somewhat brief overview of the the stakeholder process.
0: So there was a whole heck of a lot of work that went into creating this analysis by a whole heck of a lot of people. And so let's let's talk about what what the results of this report were. So based on what's in the the analysis, we we've seen that it's outlined three net zero scenarios in order to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. Can you tell us a little bit more about each of these scenarios?
1: Yeah, happy to. So we already talked about the the reference scenario, which was a really important part of the modeling process. Uh, After we were able to benchmark to the greenhouse gas inventory, develop the reference scenario, we moved into the net zero scenarios, which were the real kind of substance of what we were trying to do. So we developed three net zero scenarios. Before I go into exactly what those scenarios were i just want to point out that the objective of this process was not to choose a pathway for north carolina you know the there are all sorts of efforts happening as you know matt across the state whether it's the carbon plan and the updates that are already starting to move related to the carbon plan um, whether it's the clean transportation plan natural and working lands work some of our work in the built environment this analysis was not intended to kind of preempt any of that work, but rather help represent what we saw as a defendable and reasonable spectrum of what some of those variances could be or different pathways could be. And ultimately, the path that North Carolina takes probably looks like a blend of the three net zero scenarios and other things that we didn't anticipate. But this is the first stab at trying to represent the realm of possibility grounded in kind of the latest technology pricing projections and and trends that we're seeing. So that's my disclaimer to say, you know, don't get hung up if, on one specific pathway if you don't agree with the approach we we took because, you know, we would be the first to admit that the future is uncertain and this will hopefully help us understand some of those uncertainties.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we we saw that with the carbon plan, right? I think it's, it's, all experts in the room agree that it's really really hard to predict the future of the in- energy industry in North Carolina 25 27 years in advance especially thinking about the past 2 years in in North Carolina and the country with the passage of things like the inflation reduction act and the pandemic and supply chain issues right like who knows what the market's going to look like 3 years from now and so allowing yourself some some room for that variability depending on a variety of factors is incredibly important
1: yeah, couldn't agree more. So returning to the the three scenarios, the three net zero scenarios, the first that we looked at, and all the names of the scenarios are pretty, they describe the scenarios quite well, I think are obvious. So the first scenario is the high electrification scenario. So this is a scenario that really takes a closer look at what to what extent electrification can help achieve North Carolina's decarbonization targets. This is evident in the transportation sector. As we look at the adoption of electric vehicles, it's evident in the in the built environment. As we look at the electrification of more end uses and other sectors like industrial sector, as you look at beneficial electrification of industrial processes. So, you know, I will say that electrification, and we'll get into this probably, is a core theme across all three scenarios. But this high electrification scenario was the one where we really kind of tested the, I would say, upper bounds of what way we think beneficial electrification can um, support our emission reduction targets. The, The second scenario is the high decarbonized Fuel scenario. So, in this one, we still feature relatively large levels of elect- electrification, but we also incorporate the use of and explore the extent to which decarbonized fuels can help achieve North Carolina's climate targets. So, when I say decarbonized fuels, you know, we looked at a few different technologies, um, including hydrogen, you know, namely green hydrogen. We look at advanced biofuels. Uh, Some of these these liquid fuels that we think may need to play a role in some of the harder to decarbonize sectors, whether you're looking at industrial processes, non-road transportation, or maybe even some of the heavy duty trucking applications from our on-road sources. And then the third scenario is the high carbon storage scenario. So this basically looks at increasing the volume of negative emissions in North Carolina. I'm a relative newcomer to to North Carolina. I, I don't know if I should be admitting that on on air, but you know i I moved here a couple of years ago from Colorado, and one of the things that really struck me was the role to which our natural and working lands are really a key tool to addressing and achieving our climate targets. North Carolina's natural and working lands, sequester about a quarter of the state's gross emissions on an annual basis, which is very important and something that we should think about protecting, but also maybe enhancing over time, which is not an easy thing to do as we think about the development that's happening in the state, as well as just the impacts of a changing climate, especially on our coastal areas. But this scenario basically looks at greater sequestration through our soils and forests it also looks at negative emissions technologies so this is the one scenario where we have a a small portion of negative emissions you know we don't necessarily specify the technology but looking at things like direct air capture or other technological forms of reduce, reducing emissions so those are the three those are the three scenarios that we looked at Across those three scenarios, you know, there are many different levers that you can pull that we did look at and we can talk about in more detail, but that's the high level distinction.
0: And between each of these three scenarios, the analysis also pointed out some commonalities. And so can you talk a little bit more about some of those commonalities?
1: Yeah. So this is, for me, probably the most important part of the analysis. We, we did not set out to create the crystal ball for exactly what our future will be, our energy system will look like in 2040, 2045. What is perhaps more valuable to stakeholders today is understanding, okay, you have three dif- different scenarios here that are realistic in within the realm of possibility, but there are still uncertainties. What are the core similarities between the three portfolios? What are the, th- the things that we know we need to do irrespective of long-term discrepancy or uncertainty in technology deployment or energy system transition. And so that was distilled into these key findings that we kind of characterize as no regrets actions, things that we need to focus on no matter what to achieve our greenhouse gas goals. So I'll try to run through them somewhat briefly. The first key finding relates to the importance of electricity really serving new end uses across the economy, the importance of transitioning to zero emission vehicles, specifically electric vehicles, and transitioning to electric heat pumps and buildings. One of the huge trends that we see in this analysis, and we're not unique in this takeaway, is that electricity is projected to become the foremost fuel powering our economy in the, you know, over time as we work to reduce emissions and take advantage of the benefits of renewable energy, battery storage, et cetera. So today electricity serves about 30 percent of the final energy demand in North Carolina and in across our three net zero scenarios, we see that increasing to between 57 and 67 percent. So this is a clear key finding. Beneficial electrification and electrification of new end uses across the economy, namely in the transportation space and in our buildings, is a really important uh, strategy to focus on. If we're going to be electrifying new things, it's important that we are continuing to reduce the carbon intensity of our electricity. And so, and this is a topic obviously you're well aware of and your listeners are well aware of. But the second key finding is we need to continue to rapidly decarbonize electricity generation so that we can take advantage of that cleaner um, electricity. Economy. So, this will happen through things like the Implementation of the carbon plan, you know, pursuant to House Bill 951. This is a body of work that has its own venue and is well, you know, underway, uh, but certainly something that we found in our analysis that decarbonizing electricity both reduces greenhouse gas emissions from a top emitting sector in the power sector, uh, but also serves as the foundation to economy wide electrification. The third key finding, and one that, you know, we maybe don't talk enough about is the importance of our cheapest uh, clean energy resource which is energy efficiency so we need to continue to encourage high levels of energy efficiency across the economy whether that is in the traditional sense through things like efficient appliances and more efficient building shells but also through sectors like transportation and thinking about enhancing the efficiency of our transportation system through transit, more multi-mobility options, that type of thing. I think it's also important to note that electrification in and of itself is an efficiency strategy. Electric vehicles, heat pumps, these technologies can be two to four times as efficient as current fossil powered options today. And so we really do see greater efficiency by moving towards some of these newer, cleaner and increasingly more affordable clean energy technologies. The fourth takeaway is that decarbonized fuels have a role to play. So, especially, and this is especially true in our harder to electrify sectors, uh, such as industry and potentially, you know, our larger trucks and some of our off-road transportation. So, our analysis looked at primarily at green hydrogen and advanced biofuels, which aren't constrained by the same blend limits as conventional with fossil fuels as conventional biofuels uh, like ethanol or biodiesel and you know, we see decarbonized fuels accounting for between three and thirteen percent of final energy demand in twenty fifty across the net zero scenario. So this is an area where I know there's some interesting work underway. We have a number of utilities and off-takers that have submitted a hydrogen hub proposal through the Department of Energy, other other conversations in this space, but our analysis basically, you know, showed that yes, in fact, this is probably an important tool in the toolbox as we as we move towards our goals of 2050. The final key finding that I'll just quickly touch upon because I've already mentioned it is the critical role of protecting and expanding our natural carbon sinks. So I'll say it again just because it's so important. Natural and working lands in North Carolina are estimated to sequester over a quarter of the state's gross emissions. We need to make sure that at the very least we are maintaining that the level of sequestration that we enjoy today and looking for ways to make sure that uh, that our soils and our forests play an even bigger role over time.
0: I find it Particularly interesting, you mentioned right now, I think right now you said electricity serves as about 30% of our fuel source and projection for that to grow to 57 to 60% of fuel sources in the future, which really emphasizes the importance of, you know, given the, the growing dependence on that as a fuel source, ensuring that the electricity grid in North Carolina remains reliable. I know we've we've dealt with some reliability issues earlier this year. And actually, we, NCSEA held an event last week in which we featured a number of sitting utilities commissioners talking about how they approach proceedings in front of the commission. And one of the most important things that they specifically mentioned was identifying ways to create downward pressure on utility rates, especially for low and moderate income customers in North Carolina. We've seen over the past couple of years, upward pressures on, on utility rates, especially stemming from the volatility of, of fossil fuel pricing uh, and a number of other things like inflation related to just actual uh, infrastructure costs. So those are two things that we'll probably be hearing a whole lot about, the reliability and price uh, on the electricity grid over the next 20 to 25 years and, and since you mentioned some more advanced type of technologies or fuels like green hydrogen and advanced biofuels, do you think that, you know, we currently have the technologies in place today to ensure that we're meeting these net zero goals or are technologies like that the green hydrogen something that will need to still be in the R&D wings and working on development to ensure that we're ready to meet those net zero goals in the future?
1: I'm going to give you a both-and answer, you know, both technologies that are ready to deploy today and we're going to need to work on the technologies that really will be kind of the second round of of, uh, decarbonizing and some of the sectors that are um, a little bit harder to decarbonize. So one of the very exciting things about this work and I think one of the exciting takeaways of the analysis is the vast majority of the technologies that we need to deploy to achieve our 2030 targets are mature out in the world and being utilized today. So you can look at renewable energy, electric cars, electric vehicles. These are all technologies that um, are already, like I mentioned in the market, as they continue to be scaled and the markets continue to mature, they will continue on their learning curves, costs will continue to go down and the benefits to customers will continue to increase. You know, I think we also need to refer back to the clean energy technology That was around well before renewables became cost competitive, and that's energy efficiency. Um, That's something that, you know, certainly we need to utilize across the economy if we're going to achieve our our mid and long term emission reduction goals. Um, But after 2035, North Carolina certainly does need to be prepared to deploy that next phase of solutions. We need to be tackling some of these more challenging applications in industry, in our agriculture sector, in our you know, weight, municipal waste and off-road transportation applications. And so some of those technologies that will likely support decarbonization in those sectors are still um, in the earlier stages of commercialization and deployment compared to things like electric vehicles. And so some of the technologies that we call out in our analysis include large, larger heat pumps for commercial buildings. Those are, you know, we think um, technologies that need to be matured. Zero emission and heavy duty vehicle applications for the heavy duty trucking sector. So I think there's still somewhat of an open question about the role of hydrogen fuel cell versus battery electric heavy duty trucks. We have companies that are, you know, working on those technologies today, but that's something that we're going to have to um, take a close look at. We've talked a lot about green hydrogen. That's a use in our trucking sector, but also potentially could play a role in other sectors of the economy advanced biofuels. And then I'll just go back to that high decarbonized or high carbon storage scenario where we are looking at negative emission technologies like direct air capture to help reduce emissions over time.
0: I keep thinking about, you know, you talked about the the commercially viable technologies that are out there right now. And I keep thinking about the image that I saw on Energy Twitter there's a there's a funny shirt that's circulating around. It's like a meme of jiggershaw Shaw, and just below it just says deploy. And so that's that's kind of what I'm envisioning right in the immediate future, as we're also at the same time working on R&D related efforts for some of the carbon capture technologies, green hydrogen, things like that. And to your point, it is it is exciting that North Carolina is playing a role in the development of a lot of these technologies, knowing, you know, hydrogen hub down Charlotte and and throughout North Carolina. And there are a lot of other companies that are investing heavily in this space that are right here in our backyard. So North Carolina, you know, no matter the the technology is going to play some role in developing the energy future here across the country, which is really exciting.
1: Yeah. I I mean, just to quickly respond, it's one of the amazing things about North Carolina, and it doesn't come without challenges related to local community impacts and, um, other you know, social issues that we need to be thinking about. But in many sectors, North Carolina is literally building the technologies that we're talking about, whether it's the electric vehicles, uh, the charging stations, obviously the, uh, there's a robust clean energy and renewable energy industry. And so I think we have the benefit of um, partnering with that industry here in the state as we start to answer some of these really hard technological and deployment questions.
0: And we have such an immense uh, network of just like incredibly talented individuals throughout the state that just know so much about so many different areas of, of clean energy. And it's just so fascinating to, to get a chance to talk to folks. So how does this report address low to moderate income needs across the state to ensure we're considering those with the, the highest need as we transition to a net zero economy, especially when I mentioned, right, transitioning to more of electricity as a fuel source and making sure that we're creating that downward pressure on rates for those LMI communities?
1: Yeah, it's a critical question. And I'll just maybe as a super high level response, start by saying I, I believe firmly that the only way that we are going to undertake this transition on the pace and scale that is needed to achieve our climate goals is if the technologies that we're talking about are the most affordable, they're the most reliable and the easiest option for all North Carolinians, all cost customers, especially low to moderate income households. And so that's kind of, in my opinion, where we need to start the conversation. And, you know, one of the exciting things is that because of the incredible uh, and precipitous drop in, in costs we're seeing for some of these technologies, that's not just a, you know, a idealized vision of the future. That is something that we are seeing bear out in a lot of cases, especially if through public policy Investments um, and other programs, you can help buy down the upfront cost investment of some of these technologies, so that customers can enjoy the long-term savings, whether that's through reduced maintenance costs for electric vehicles, fueling costs, or you know energy costs in the household. So, going back to the pathways analysis specifically, maybe we'll give a less (laughs) inspiring answer, which is we weren't able to look at detailed cost modeling as a part of these specific scenarios. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So one is just the time constraints and the bandwidth and resource constraints we had for the analysis. We were, you know, really had to choose an altitude and an aperture that we felt like we could uh, reasonably complete within 12 months, which was set out in the executive order. One of the other dynamics was, as you know very well, that this process was happening right as the U- North Carolina Utilities Commission was developing the carbon plan. As a result of House Bill 951, we did not want to get into the middle of that discussion because the Utilities Commission was the clearly designated venue to undertake that process. But what it meant was we didn't undertake detailed power sector modeling as part of our efforts, you know, production cost modeling, capacity expansion modeling, which really would have kind of been the foundation to understanding the cost of some of these portfolios. So that that's a limitation of the analysis and certainly something that we want to integrate into follow-up work in in pathways but also obviously updates to the carbon plan moving forward. You know, as I mentioned, one of the aspects of the pathways analysis is that we were looking specifically at greenhouse gas emissions reductions and achieving the governor's greenhouse gas emissions reductions goals. But one of the exciting aspects of this whole transition is the fact that the technologies that we're talking about to meet the need on greenhouse gas reductions are also the same technologies that are going to improve people's lives, improve public health, improve indoor and outdoor air quality, hopefully mitigate and reduce energy burden. You talk about the electric sector where we've had stagnant low growth for decades, We now have this incoming expansion of beneficial electrification in our transportation sector and our built environment. And if we do that, if we facilitate that transition in a smart way and uh, make sure that we're adding some of that load growth in off-peak times, we're going to have the ability to put downward pressure on rates. And so there's a really exciting story, but it's not guaranteed. It's going to require a lot of really complicated efforts at the Utilities Commission. It's going to require really thoughtful and proactive deployment and investment of federal funding which we have opportunity now through the inflation reduction act for all sorts of things you know your question was about low to moderate income needs for electricity specifically we've we've seen through the bipartisan infrastructure law and the inflation reduction act an influx of funding for the weatherization of existing homes For our state energy program funding that supports weatherization, but also can help to reduce energy burden in homes. And then we have these large new programs that are going to help us with home electrification, the electrification of end uses, and also the uh, improvement of efficiency upgrades. So the pathways analysis is just one piece of that puzzle. It fits into the broader context of what e- Executive Order 246 set up, which includes a big emphasis on supporting energy affordability. But we do think that the analysis helps to provide some some insights that will help move that work forward.
0: Now that the analysis is out, what are the next steps to ensure that these recommendations are implemented, similar to what we saw with the Clean Energy Plan, for example?
1: Yeah, so if folks don't want to read the whole 131 page pathways analysis, which was described by one reporter as dense as a flourless cake recipe, (laughs) then I will direct you to the, what we call a roadmap to net zero section, which is basically trying to translate nine, 10 months of work and stakeholder process and modeling into actionable near-term steps that connect to our key takeaways, but really are grounded in the the near-term opportunities that we see to use this information. So we broke that roadmap to net zero down into near-term actions between now and 2025, mid-term actions between 2025 and 2035, and then those longer-term needs to deploy the next phase of solutions that we previously discussed. There are a lot of near-term opportunities to actually put these findings to work and to utilize these these findings and make sure that our planning and state government is grounded in an analysis that looks at what we need to do to stay on track to achieve our long-term goals. Right now, the administration is in the final phases of developing the governor's proposed state budget for for this year. And, And we've certainly taken a look at the pathways analysis and thinking about targeted state investments that can help to support some of the transitions that we're talking about. We've talked a lot about federal funding and I know that you've done podcasts on federal funding. I'll say it again. This is a generational investment and a generational opportunity for North Carolina to deploy many of the strategies and the solutions that we've identified, not just in pathways, but in planning process, going back to the clean energy plan. One of the things that I'm excited about in North Carolina is that we've done the work in a lot of ways. We have done the stakeholder engagement, we've done the planning, and now we have an opportunity to meet those priorities and those needs with billions of dollars of funding, and those billions of dollars of funding are not guaranteed for North Carolina. Some we are going to have to compete for, but I think because of that groundwork, we have set ourselves up to be very competitive for federal resources. The carbon plan implementation—we talked a little bit about that. That's a topic that NCSEA and you've been providing a lot of perspective and engagement on. I'll just say, you know, as I previously mentioned, our goal was not to interject or intercede into the carbon plan proceedings over the last year, but we do hope that this analysis is useful as we look forward to the updates to the carbon plan and to the implementation of the carbon plan. This analysis provides state-specific evaluation of what kind of low growth we're talking about in a world where we, in fact, do move towards the governors and the the state's greenhouse gas targets. And so hopefully that will be informational and useful as we think about not just what that means for our bulk electric grid, but what it also means for integrating these new end uses in a way that's going to ultimately benefit consumers, especially those consumers that face a high energy burden. Um, One of the sectors that we didn't talk a lot about today, and this this hour has kind of vanished, is the built environment. So the built environment is one of those spaces where we think there's a lot of opportunity, both to improve the efficiency of our, our buildings, to electrify and reduce emissions in the end uses of our buildings, and we have to focus on new buildings for sure, but also on the existing building stock, which is going to be the majority of buildings that are still out there in 2050. So we have opportunities when it comes to federal funding, but I'll also note that right now the Building Code Council is currently updating the state's residential and commercial energy code, which is a really important process. And in our modeling, we kind of see it as a baseline to bring our energy codes up to the latest standards to ensure that we are supporting new buildings that are resilient, are energy efficient, and aligned with our greenhouse gas targets. Workforce development. One of the biggest concerns that I hear about from folks that are actually in the industry and employing the people that are going to build this clean energy future that people like I just talk about is the fact that you know we need to make sure that we are building the pipeline to ensure we have the workers to support this transition and that we're actually realizing the economic value proposition of why we're doing this. All of the job growth opportunities, all of the clean energy economic growth opportunities. So um, hopefully this analysis will be useful for things like the Steps for Growth program, which is a $20 million EDA grant that's being facilitated in partnership between the state and NCA&T to build clean energy um, apprenticeship and credentialing opportunities in the transportation sector, in the clean energy sector, um, this helps to paint a picture of where some of those market needs may be. And then, you know, I could keep going on, but I'll just say, you know, there's all sorts of other efforts like the Clean Transportation Plan that is grounded in this analysis. This analysis informed our work on EO271, which is our work to support the transition to zero emission vehicles in the medium and heavy duty sector specifically, which we know are vehicles that only comprise about 3.2% of our on-road motor fleet, but are responsible for a disproportionate share of both greenhouse gas emissions, and maybe more importantly, probably more importantly, especially for the local communities, is the local air pollution, the NOx emission, the particulate matter that harms all North Carolinians, uh, but especially communities of color, low-income communities, and other historically underserved communities. So that's a really important effort that I'll just, I guess, quickly put a pin in because it, it interacts with this analysis. And then I'll conclude by just saying we've got a lot more work to do in evaluating pathways for North Carolina. This is not the end of this process. So we're already thinking about ways that we can build and improve this analysis, whether that's looking more closely at what's the local air pollution associated with these pathways. What does this mean for environmental justice and local environmental stress that, um, We know disproportionately burdens communities of color, low-income communities, Um, looking at more closely at the economic impacts. What are the macroeconomic impacts of these energy and and pathway transitions? What are the job growth opportunities? How can we be prepared to ensure that those job growth opportunities are being grown here in North Carolina? Um, And then, of course, the spirit of this analysis is that if we're going to achieve our long-term goals, we need to be continually monitoring and tracking so that we know if there are course adjustments or ways that we need to accelerate in different areas. And so our hope is to figure out a way to make sure that this is an ongoing conversation and this is a body of work that's continually updated as the very complicated world that we live in continues to to change.
0: And what's, what's great about everything that you've just outlined is that this administration has really set up the, the state towards a path to success in reaching these carbon emissions reduction goals, starting all the way back to EO80, knowing that the administration had a hand in making sure that House Bill 951 passed here in the state. And I think about that importance and knowing that many of these different initiatives, rules, laws now on the books will will far outlast the the Cooper administration here in North Carolina. So no matter what happens in the future uh, with, with The political scene or the political spectrum, we've already established a number of of procedures and processes here in the state that really set us up on that path. And I think about like the carbon plan proceedings that will now be updated every two years. And uh, things like, you know, we were talking about advanced clean trucks, we're talking about the building code council, like a lot of things that are already in action. Um, that I, I'm really excited about continuing to, to kind of move down the pike towards those carbon emission uh, goals that have been outlined previously. Zach, I, I do really appreciate you taking the time to to bear through the mic issues, through losing power in the middle of the interview, dogs barking. But I think it was a really great hour and covered a whole lot of territory because there is a lot in the, the pathways analysis, because there are a lot of pathways for us to achieving those goals. And I appreciate all the work that you're doing with the administration to help lead that charge. So Zach, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast.
1: Thank you, Matt. I've really enjoyed the conversation. These are, you know, I don't, I'm sure I have oversimplified what are very complex topics. I mean, I think you losing power in the middle of the interview is a is a reminder that reliability is a, a underpinning of all the work that we're talking about. But, you know, we we're excited about all of the efforts that are happening across the state. We state government can certainly not do any of this work alone. But you know I think one of the ways that we can add value is to help um, convene all the experts across the state to help with the goal setting, to help kick off these initiatives that are gonna make sure that we are ready to realize the benefits of this clean energy transition locally. And I, I think that's what Governor Cooper has done through the issuance of numerous executive orders and his leadership in, in growing our clean energy economy.
0: My key takeaway from today's episode is the importance that electricity is going to play as a fuel source for so many aspects of our economy in the future. If you can remember from the interview, Zach mentioned that the report predicts that electricity will supply 57 to 67% of all energy demand by 2050, up from about 30% today, which emphasizes the importance of decarbonizing our electricity sector to ensure many other aspects of our lives are carbon-free as well. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke, one-liners. And episode 88 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy from North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.